It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. The Coin Bureau Podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. Ten days after the Fed had loaned out $540 billion in order to keep the U.S. economy going, Satoshi reappeared and he published the Bitcoin white paper to the cryptography mailing list. Welcome, everyone, to the Coin Bureau podcast. And this one, finally, after weeks of dancing around the subject, uh, we are going to finally talk about Ethereum. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to finally talk about Bitcoin. Yes. We've mentioned it a lot. We've done uh, we've done at least two episodes, I think, on the um, on the background. What is money? How does money work? The current financial system, all that. Then we spent a couple of episodes talking about blockchain, mm-hmm. and that got quite techy, didn't it? Yeah. I tried to keep it nonces. Yeah, we talked about nonces. Now, uh, follow up to that because I went back and I, I was like, I must find out 
why, why it's called a nonce. Um, it's, it stands for number used only once. Or, it, you know, it's shorthand for number used only oh, once. Oh, okay. Yeah. So nonce. <laughs> Turns out we were pronouncing it wrong. It's a nuance. <laughs> no, no, nuance. <laughs> okay, number used only once. Okay. Number used only once. So there's a little bit of, uh, there's a little addendum to a previous episode. It's time to talk about the original cryptocurrency. The OG. The OG, the big daddy, the granddaddy of crypto, Bitcoin. OG Crypto C. Let's yeah. go. So, in this episode, we're obviously going to start talking about Bitcoin. There is so much to cover. So, we're going to spread this out over a few episodes um, because I want to go into a bit of detail. I want to skirt as much of the tech as possible because we've covered quite a lot of the tech. Um, and I worry that I don't want to get I don't want to get too technical if we can help it. Um, so, this is going to be more sort of the history, the emergence of Bitcoin, the history of it. And what I've chosen to do is to try and focus it around some of the people involved. Some of these people are quite well known. Um, others are a little more obscure. And, and this is kind of, this thing is all relative, like in the crypto community. Um, some, are, some are sort of known in the wider world. Um, but these are people who have, in their own way, made massive contributions to Bitcoin. And as we go along, sort of different types of people will emerge. Um, but for so for a step, but for a start, we're going to obviously focus on the people who helped bring Bitcoin into existence, including, of course, Satoshi Nakamoto. Yes, the man whose name you always get wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but before we go on, before we delve into the history of Bitcoin, let's quickly for those uh, for those people who didn't maybe catch any of the episodes on blockchain or are still getting up to speed, let's quickly remind ourselves of exactly what Bitcoin is. Yep. Um, so, Bitcoin is a form of digital cash and it can be exchanged between indiv individuals without the need for any sort of third party. Peerless. Peer-to-peer. Uh, Peer-to-peer. And peerless. peerless. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's peer-to-peer, -peer, yeah. So previously, digital assets could only be exchanged if there was some sort of third party, some sort of middleman, if you like, in the middle because uh, there was no way otherwise to prevent them being copied. And this, we touched on this... Uh, double spend. The, exactly, yeah, the double spend problem. Um, because, yeah, any digital asset can be very easily copied and sent to multiple multiple recipients. So that obviously has no decent function as a currency, as a form of money, if, it's in, if it can be easily replicated. So the genius of Bitcoin was to find a way to exchange digital assets that you could be confident that they, that they were unique. And the way it did this was to, uh, was to use the magic of blockchain technology, which obviously we've discussed uh, a lot recently. So, yeah, um, a, a form of digital cash, an electronic money that can be exchanged privately, uh, pseudonymously, not anonymously, yep. uh, importantly, um, which is a common misconception, but uh, with, a with a degree of privacy. Um, and weirdly enough, uh, the ideas for this had been kicking around for quite some time. So before we talk about Bitcoin in detail, let's talk about DigiCash. DigiCash is one of the is, a, is an early forerunner of Bitcoin. Um, before we talk about it, let's remind ourselves of the difference between a cash and a digital uh, transaction. Obviously, cash takes place peer to peer. It needs face. to be in person. Yeah, face to face. Yeah. A digital transaction, the advantages it has, it, it can be done over distance. You don't need to be in the same room, but obviously it needs a middleman, someone in a third party in a the middle of the A check and balance is overseeing it. Yeah, yeah. 
So this is we're going to go back to the kind of the 1980s. The computer revolution is just getting started, and the banking system uh, is beginning to kind of take note of this new technology. So the world is sort of starting to slowly computerize. And this is obviously a process that's going to speed up a lot, a bit like a snowball. It's yeah. going to grow exponentially over the years. But um, a good example, I mean, think, uh, think to uh, linked cash machines, linked ATMs. Do you remember, I do, um, not, well, when we were... Certain banks and certain cash machines. Exactly, yes. exactly. So if you banked with, say, Barclays... You could only use a Barclays cash machine. Yeah. Or no, there was like it was there were little there were little um, logos on your card. That's right. Yeah. And then you could only like you had to basically see the logo, and if you were like Bank of Scotland or I don't know. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, as a sort of in general, you could only you could only withdraw cash. You could only use your bank card at certain ATMs. Yeah. Um, and this all changed. And I remember this changing. I mean, it must have been in the sort of mid 90s. And you, <clears throat> certainly here in the UK, you started to see ATM machines with uh, link. written. Yeah, up. yeah. Yeah. And that meant I mean, that that felt like a huge leap forward because you didn't let's say you were out. You were out late at night. You wanted to get home. You needed some cash. You didn't have to trek sort of several streets or. Yeah. Back in know. the day when taxis would only take cash. Yeah. It wasn't. You know, just there was tap none, your of, this, card none of this tap your card. And, no, no. And your bank account is emptied. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you had to empty your bank you account yourself. physically hand it over. Yeah. Banks are starting to computerize. The, the whole world is starting to computerize. Basically, our lives be- started to become more digital, less analog. And some people began to realize that having banks in the middle of digital transactions basically represented a pretty big potential threat to user privacy because they were going to be able to to not only see how much money we were spending, as in obviously they they knew how much money was in our account and they could see how much cash we were taking out, but now with everything being digitized, they could also see where we were spending it. Mm. So they were suddenly, they were were set to gain an enormous amount of oversight. And obviously that has major repercussions for privacy because as someone someone I um, talked to recently said, kind of nothing reveals so much about you as as how you spend your money. Mm. So one of one particular person who was most concerned about this state of affairs was a guy called David Chaum. So he was a computer scientist and cryptographer from nerd. California. A ge- yeah, a kind of <laughs> nerd. He was a nerd from California. He was a very smart dude from California. Um, and he had this idea of using cryptography to make it harder to monitor email. Because obviously, not only um, you know, the, not only was the banking system becoming more, um, getting more oversight, but obviously people were starting to use email more and more. So mm. obviously, the, the sensitive providers. information sort of being pinged about. Yeah, yeah. So I, I watched uh, I watched an interview with David Chaum and um, a, a BBC interview, and uh, he's quoted as saying, "Privacy is intimately tied to human potential. It's an extraordinarily important, extraordinarily important aspect of democracy." Yeah, which I think is yeah, which is absolutely right, and again, this this idea of privacy, and I think it might have been David Chaum who used this example. He said, "Well, let's let, let's imagine you're in your front room of an evening. You don't have anything to hide, but that doesn't mean that you don't want privacy, and that you're not that you don't have a right to privacy." Mm-hmm. 
So, yeah, David Chaum was was keenly aware of this. Um, and he became best known for developing DigiCash. And this was around 1989. And this grew out of his ideas around privacy and encryption, you know, using cryptography, using encryption uh, to keep things private. So DigiCash used public key cryptography to develop a form of digital money that be, could be transacted much more privately than was possible under the regular system. So users of DigiCash didn't have to hand over any personal information while transacting. Wow. Yeah. This was and this was a big step forward. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, and DigiCash, it bears a lot of similarities to Bitcoin. And weirdly, uh, it did actually look like it might catch on at one point. Um, so, the the rise of the internet. And now, obviously, we, we've kind of moved out, moving out of the 1980s. Uh, 1989, DigiCash came along. So, the 1990s is the next phase of the computer revolution. And that is obviously the rise of the internet. So, yeah, we have the internet starting to, to become a thing. The internet starting to grow uh, and starting to catch on. And it looked like for a while DigiCash might be the answer to transacting online because businesses were waking up to the potential of the mm -hmm. internet and going, hang on, we can use this to sell We don't have use to, this to sell stuff. people within you know, a 10-mile radius. It could be... yeah. The possibilities are endless charm. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, the idea of, I guess you'd call it e-commerce, yeah. has, been, has been around for a long time. And obviously Amazon itself. The, I mean, we used to, used to, used to read um, uh, adverts in the back of comics. Mm. You used to have to go get a postal order yeah. with, and then send that off to whatever comic and then you'd get some... Um, sea monkeys or whatever, <laughs> x-ray goggles or yeah. whatever. That, that didn't work and the sea monkeys died. But yeah. that was a, probably the first form of, not e-commerce, I suppose. But a pre-runner, but a forerunner of it. Yeah. You know, this idea that you don't actually need to go to a physical shop, to a physical location yeah. and hand over cash and buy it in person. Yeah, the idea that you can transact, again, Instead transact. Of a magazine, existence. it's online. And yeah, uh, and yeah it's just, uh, it's, it, it takes one of the steps out of it. Exactly. Exactly. And yeah, so one of the, but one of the big questions um, that these that these people were asking themselves, those who saw the potential for e-commerce, and that includes, you know, major banks and people like Visa and MasterCard. One of the big problems that they were thinking was how are how are we going to do the money? Basically, how are we going to transact online? Um, because obviously, you know, the information needs to be exchanged um, and information that, that has up to now been private. This is going to be... And it's, it's, it's not like we're in the, in the age of the era. It's not like we're in the same sort of era we are today where everyone is connected on a mm. phone. Yeah. It's, it's a lot more uh, sort of nomadic. I don't know. Not nomadic. It's a lot more sort of isolated, you know. Yeah. Like... So only certain people had the internet in the eighties as well. Well, yeah, we're we're sort of more into we're in the kind 90s, of more into the nineties. I remember now, I was one of the <clears throat> first people on our our street to get um, dial up internet. My dad was very much into it. Really, yeah. he was an early adopter. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he 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 sort of um, w wanted to do his banking online and went with the Royal Bank of Scotland because they were the only ones who were able to do. He could really? check his balance online. Yeah. Like and it was it was it was like something from MS DOS, <laughs> but it was yeah. That's why he, yeah. he's always back with them. It's amazing, isn't it? And I mean, you've got to you've got to admire the foresight of these guys for for, for seeing that potential mm. early on. 
Um, because, yeah, I mean, a lot of us like to think that we're, you know, we, we were early adopters or we came to it. But actually to, to be in there at the beginning, to realize the potential and, and then find a way to, to make it happen and, and think how much that's changed our lives. And the idea of having to leave the house to, to check, to find out how much money you have. Yeah. Is just it, and yeah. it used to be easier because you'd have to just go to the to to the ATM machine and you'd be able to print it. I remember when that was like, oh wow, yeah, what I can print off a balance anywhere in the street. <laughs> and now all I have to do is push my phone to my face; it recognizes my face, yeah, and then tells me how much I owe the bank. <laughs> <laughs> tells you how much debt you're yeah. actually in, yeah. Well, at least you don't have to trek down to the ATM to find yeah. out how, how poor you are now. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, as I say, uh, DigiCash, it looked for a while like it might be the answer to this problem of transacting online because of its built-in sort of privacy features. Um, and David Chaum, he, you know, it became a, it became a proper company. Uh, it signed a lot of partnerships again with the likes of, I think Visa and, um, I think Microsoft was interested in using it. Uh, major banks were picking it up. So it really did look like it could become a thing and it basically interest waned. It eventually came to nothing. Um, and DigiCash itself, the, the company went bankrupt in 1998, which is you know, relatively recent so it lasted it lasted sort of about 10 years yeah which is quite a long time yeah really in, the, in you know when you consider how how quickly startups come and go yeah sure um so there are a few reasons uh, for why digicash didn't catch on um some are to do with david cham himself uh, some sources say that he was very difficult to work with he asked for too much money um, Chaum himself said uh, that basically DigiCash, new management came on board um, uh, the year before it went under and they mismanaged it. And, you know, one 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 side says one thing, another says another. Mm. Um, there's another interesting theory that says it actually represented a threat to the banks. So these banks who were getting into bed with it sort of suddenly realized, hang on, this... I don't, I don't, I don't dismiss that at all. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's that's definitely... That's definitely possible. They they saw that um, you know they saw that this could be a potential a potential competitor. Mm. Uh, it could be a better way of doing things. And uh, obviously, banks they weren't all that concerned about user privacy. Why would they be? No, you know, for them it's an for them they want to get their system up and running, and actually, and they want their system to catch on. Um, they want more customers, and actually, if they can see, if they if they have access to that sort of data, that's an enormous amount of power. So, yeah, there's there's certainly a theory that they that the banks and themselves, the big the big customers, might have might have killed it as a as as being too dangerous, mm. you know, sort of strangled it at birth, as it were. Um, and because their concern again was, they were more interested in in harnessing the potential of e-commerce. Um, and they, they could do that without DigiCash. They, they, they found other ways to do it. Um, and eventually the systems were developed that made it easier and safer to use credit cards on the Internet. Um, and that uh, gave rise to the likes of PayPal um, that emerged. And basically e-commerce found a different way. DigiCash, it looked like it could be the answer, but it wasn't. Before we get too disappointed about the fact that DigiCash didn't catch on, it was itself actually quite centralised. And as we've seen from episodes on blockchain, centralization is is not good. It's not something uh, it's not something that that, the, that we want. Um, and it has its own it, its own particular dangers. 
So even though users were able to transact more privately, the DigiCash company itself was still needed to confirm transactions and balances. And this is not in keeping with the core ideals uh, of Bitcoin in particular. Um, just quickly mention another project. Uh, this was founded in 1996 and this uh, attempted a similar thing. This was called eGold. You created an eGold account, uh, you bought some actual gold and then paid other eGold account holders with it. Uh, it did become quite successful as well. Um, I'm looking at uh, looking at some stats here. By 2008, sadly, uh, eGold was being used largely by criminals. <laughs> um, there was all it's sorts, 100% linked. <laughs> yeah, there were all sorts of problems. Um, hacking, there was identity theft, there was fraud. It was shut down in 2009. The FBI had actually had it under investigation since around 2005 oh, and i think when i was when i was looking into it i think the consequences are still playing out i think the people behind it are still having to deal with the fallout from it um and th this was weird because this uh, eGold, i must say and and digicash as well but then i was a bit too young for digicash but eGold completely passed me by i don't remember hearing about that at all at the time um, but it, yeah, it, it did. Again, it looked like it might become popular. Uh, but again, it was kind of riddled with issues. And yeah, criminals caught on to it. And as we'll see, as we'll see later, criminals tend to are quite good at, at latching on to this sort of thing. I mentioned earlier, um, I mentioned that some people had become worried about the erosion of privacy in the digital age. So David Chan was one, um, but there were others. And they have come to be known as the cypherpunks. So the cypherpunks, yeah, not to be confused with the cyberpunks, yeah. which is, which is, yeah, I think that's where of, the play on words comes from. Yeah. So the cypherpunks, they basically were a group of kind of libertarian leaning computer programmers, cryptographers, scientists, thinkers, and, and others who were mainly obsessed with the idea of privacy in the digital age. Okay. Nerds, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, a, a, a group of very smart people, a group of very geeky people. Um, With, yeah, no, honourable. I like it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these guys, again, they had amazing foresight. They they saw the computer age dawn. They saw the coming of the internet. And they realised pretty quickly uh, that although it was potentially an amazing thing. You've got to have a real thing. understanding of how the world works to go, okay, the internet is this. This is the, this is what it can do, and not just think, "All right, cool. How can I get porn or buy some clothes from further afield?" and and have such a sort of um, macro view of it to go, "This is how it's going to affect this, this, this. This is the pitfalls." Is it something to do with history? How do they have that foresight? Do yeah. they, have they seen this play out before? Some sort of technological advancement, which means that you know power shifts here, here, and here. Yeah. It's a good question. And yeah, when you look at these people, it's easy it's easy to write the cypherpunks off as as computer geeks. Yeah. As we, as we've just done. Yeah. <laughs> I mean if you call yourself that, you're gonna you're gonna catch some flack. Yeah. It's easy to think of them as as, as just guys who are who are sort of obsessed with computers. But you're you're absolutely right. They had a lot of foresight and when you especially when you when you look at uh, some of their writings and a lot of the things that they talked about on their forums, you know, these were people not just with knowledge of computers but of economics, of history as you say, of yeah, basically how the world works. These were really, really smart people. And, you know, I say these were, that these guys are, are still around today. Um, and they are, yeah, they, they still have a lot of these concerns. They're still kind of fighting these battles. Mm. 
Um, but yeah, the, the group that became known as the Cypherpunks, it emerged from a meeting held in California in 1992. So again, early days of the internet. It's, uh, it's, it's quite intriguing, actually. I couldn't find... The details of this meeting are a bit unclear. Some say it was held at, um, at the home of a guy called uh, Eric Hughes, who was a mathematician, a mathematician and cryptographer, um, his home in Oakland. Others say that it was held in Santa Cruz at the home of a guy called Tim May, uh, and he had worked at places like Intel and things like that. Um, so the, the origin story is, is sort of suitably murky. Mm. Um, but that said, the cypherpunk movement itself has roots going back to around the 1970s. Um, so it's kind of, it's, it's aptly mysterious mm. uh, for, for a group of people. Sounds quite hippie-esque to me. Uh, yeah, like, so these these engineers and and sort of programmers who've who who took some acid in in the sixties. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think it's definitely uh, definitely got That's some. That's probably how of... they have this like deep un, deep lying knowledge of how the world works. They've just had some some. They've done a lot of drugs. Yeah, <laughs> that's my answer to a lot of things. As that, you know, yeah, or was I'm. I'm Still is, still Maybe. is. Okay. Um, I'm sure. Yeah. I think. I think there's. I think there's almost certainly uh, a lot of roots of it in the in the counterculture, um, and things like that. You know, these guys. Um, yeah. Perhaps they had. Perhaps they had. Uh, I'm sure a lot of them had experimented with all sorts of things. Um, so yeah, they became. They were increasingly concerned about how the internet and digitization in general. Uh, could be used by governments in particular to infringe on personal privacy. This became a hot topic among them. And David Chaum, he was a kind of early inspiration to them, thanks to, well, what we've discussed, you know, the, the digicash, the, the notions of privacy. Um, and in many ways, the cypherpunks, they anticipated a lot of the problems we're dealing with today in relation to privacy. Um, you know, we, we, we have these worries around governments and corporations. That's one of them coming for us right now. <laughs> Vlad, sort it out. <laughs> Vlad, please. Um, yeah, the, the worries around governments and corporations being able to view our transactions, harvest our data, the likes of Facebook, obviously. Um, and yes, and you can see, uh, obviously, an upshot of this was WikiLeaks. Yes. And funnily enough, one of the most famous, if you like, cypherpunks is uh, Julian Assange. Yeah. He was. Yeah. He, he's been involved with the movement for a while. Um, so I think you can sum up the cypherpunks really as a very farsighted group of people. They believe that cryptography was the tool that they could use. They and others could use to protect themselves from outside in interference. Mm. And this is where the cypher uh, from cypherpunk comes from. So this meeting, wherever it happened, it led to the creation of the Cypherpunks mailing list. And this was designed by a member of the group, appropriately enough. And it was a secure and anonymous email list where they could, which they could communicate and use, uh, um, share ideas. Yeah, so they drew up a manifesto that outlined their core beliefs. I'll read you a quote from it. Um, we the, the nerdy voice, please. Oh, okay. We, the cypherpunks, are dedicated to building anonymous systems. We're defending our privacy with cryptography, with anonymous mail forwarding systems, with digital signatures, and with electronic money. That's quite good. Yeah, was that nerdy enough? That was. It was, okay. it was very, very stereotypical okay. nerdy. Yeah, I apologize to any cypherpunks listening. Yeah. I'm sure they've. I'm sure they've got bigger fish to fry. Yeah. <laughs> so, although they're now most famous because of their place in the story of Bitcoin, uh, they weren't solely focused on digital money. Obviously, that 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 last mention of electronic money, but you know, it was privacy in general, anonymous mail forwarding systems, these digital signatures. There was a lot more to it than just creating a, a system of money that we could interact with, you know, anonymously. Yeah. Um, but that said, it was it was a core concern of theirs. 
so privacy and uh, pushing back against the power of the state were just as important to their identity. So along with a distrust of big and centralized institutions that were entrusted with our money and were able to see how we spent it, um, you know, they saw it, they, they saw this as a tool of uh, a tool of governments. Uh, so should we take a break? Yeah, let's take a break. This is Neil Strauss host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily to die for is available now listen for free on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts oh hi i'm rachel zoe and i'm back for another season of my podcast climbing in heels you might know me from the rachel zoe project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. 
is getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. We're back. Part, part two. Part two part of two. part one about Bitcoin. Part de. Exactement. We're going to talk more about the cypherpunks and their influence on Bitcoin. How does what? that sound? That sounds amazing. Excellent. <laughs> That's uncharacteristically enthusiastic of you. you know, I've had my fourth coffee of the day. <laughs> Everything is great. <laughs> okay, let's uh, let's take advantage of that before you inevitably crash, crash <laughs> in flames. Okay. So the cypherpunks, yeah, these guys did a lot of work trying to come up with a workable form of electronic money. This was one of their big obsessions, along with other things. But yeah, they did a lot of work on electronic money. And the double spend problem we've discussed many times in previous episodes. Um, a number of these cypherpunks uh, have gone on to become famous names in the crypto industry. Um, four in particular. Crypto rock stars. Crypto rock stars. Yeah, crypto OGs. And obviously they were, yeah, they were very much uh, focused on trying to solve this double spend problem. This was the big kind of stumbling block, if you will. So, one of the first guys uh, was a British computer scientist, hooray, uh, and cryptographer called Adam Back. Adam Back. Adam Back, yeah. And he came up with a system called Hashcash. Now, this was in 1997, and the, the thinking behind it was it was originally designed to combat spam email. And he made use of the proof-of-work system that we discussed when talking about blockchain. This idea of using cryptographic hash functions to create problems, basically, for a computer to solve. So, and as we saw, the only way that the computer can do this is to submit a lot of guesses and thus use up a lot of power. So, under the system that Adam Back came up with, a computer was rewarded with hash cash when it solved this problem, when it made the correct guess, if you like. Now, if you apply this to email, the idea behind it was he was trying to make sending spam uneconomic. Got it. Um, because obviously, if you're adding trying... a cost into sending email, though. Exactly. Well, yeah, it's obviously the big thing with spam is that, you know, all you need is that all you need is the addresses and you can send it out to as many people you like. It's very cost efficient. It doesn't mm. really cost anything to do. But this system was designed so that the email could only be sent if it had a sort of hash cash stamp. Um, which proved that the work had been done, that proved that the computer had done this proof-of-work uh, process. So, I mean, I guess the, the easiest analogy to make is like having to put a, st a stamp on a real letter. This was almost finding a way to stamp spam emails. So, And the whole process was designed to make sending spam so uneconomic that no one would bother. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, it was, it was a really good idea. You and hear that, Nigeria? <laughs> you hear that, all those spammers? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a shame. It's a shame, really. It didn't, uh, it, it didn't catch on more. Yeah. Um, the problem with Hashcash, the main problem was that the units of Hashcash uh, that acted as these sort of digital stamps, they could only be used once. So anyone using the system, you kept having to create new ones. Um, mm. And obviously, this isn't very useful if you're, if you're trying to make a form of money, if you actually have to create the money in the first yeah, place yeah. and you can't spend it again. You know, it doesn't, th that system quickly falls apart. Got a, got a short shelf life. Exactly. 
So, yeah, back, he shared his ideas on the Cypherpunks mailing list and others in the community kind of picked up the bat and they kind of ran with it, um, fiddled with it to try and see if they could get it to work. Now, one of these guys to do it was Hal Finney. He had the idea of being able to reuse these proof-of-work guesses, which would then, you know, theoretically give them value as a currency because of the work that had been done to produce them. Hal Finney we're going to see a bit more of in future because he is a big contributor to Bitcoin. And depending on who you believe, some people may think he's more than that. Oh, we'll leave that there for the time being. Okay. Another guy to contribute um, to, to, to work on Adam Back's idea, this hash cash idea, was uh, Wei Dai. Um, and his system was known as B-Money. Now, this came around, He, I think he proposed this in around 1998. And this made use of the idea of a public ledger, which meant that all transactions could be seen by the rest of the network. Got it, yeah. And yeah, as you can see, there's, there's kind of similarities here emerging to Bitcoin. And then there was another guy called Nick Sabo. Uh, that's S-Z-A-B-O, Nick Sabo. I'm loving these names. There, there, there are some amazing names. This is Hal Finney, Zabo. Yeah. What was the other one? Way Dai. Yeah. There is, crypto is a, is a sort of never-ending source of amazing names. No there Kevin some, Smiths. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm sure there are some. I'm sure there I'm are. Sure there are some like, Kevin no, Smiths. You know, yeah. yeah. He came up with an, a system called Bitgold. Now, this was 2005, and this is very similar to Bitcoin. Mm. So... Hal Finney and Nick Sabo are two guys. I'd love to talk more about them more about them now, but we're going to do an episode in future where we focus on on this on the idea rock stars. on the rocks. Well, no, we're going to focus more on Satoshi Nakamoto, this this anonymous figure uh, who no one no one knows who he is, uh, no one knows who he is, who he might have been, whether he's still alive. So we're going to do a whole episode in future on the hunt for Satoshi Nakamoto, who and and possible candidates for who you should get him on the pod. He could be, yeah, yeah. I'll um, yeah. <laughs> Satoshi, if you're listening, and you'd like to unmask yourself after no, no, after we could just do it like years. we could do it on a Zoom and just black out his thing, or just yeah, yeah. But it's, I mean, it's just getting him on the Zoom. That's going to be the difficult bit. Look, I'm sure if Seeing he invented no- Bitcoin, I'm sure he can work out how to use Zoom. <laughs> yes, it's more that no one knows who he is and no one knows how to get hold of him. So, yeah, we're going to do a whole episode on the hunt for Satoshi Nakamoto, possible candidates of who he or she or they could be. And spoiler alert, Hal Finney and Nick Zabo are two of the names that are going to feature quite heavily in that. So I think we'll, we're going to talk a bit more about Hal Finney later on. Nick Sabo, we're going to leave for another time because he is, uh, yeah, he's a fascinating, character. fascinating character. Um, so these systems, Wei Dai's B-Money and Nick Sabo's BitGold, they were only ever um, theories. They were only ever kind of written down. No one actually built them. Um, but they both had similarities both with each other and with Bitcoin. Okay, so they both use made use of public key cryptography, which is, we've talked about in previous episodes. They both used this proof of work system uh, that had, that was sort of an improvement on Adam Back's hash cash idea, and they also both used time stamping to order transactions. Now we haven't talked too much about this, but this is a this is another uh, component of Bitcoin that's quite important. Uh, we'll we'll talk about that another time, perhaps, but. Both B-Money and BitGold, these, these theories that were put out there, they were shown to be vulnerable to Sybil attacks. 
Uh, so a civil attack, yes, yeah, is, is where a malicious entity or actor or hacker or whatever is able to gain control over the network by signing up lots of new users. Oh, yes. We talked about this with the blockchain thing where basically because there are so many, it would take so much computing power to do this. It's, it's nigh on impossible. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And this is, again, one of Bitcoin's one of Bitcoin's real strengths now is that, yeah, this sort of attack is impossible. But in theory, both B-Money and Bitgold were yeah vulnerable to this start, attack. It's very possible. Yeah. Because there's so few nodes. Exactly. Yeah. OK. Exactly. Is that the right this, yeah. terminology? Right. No, yeah. You're, you're absolutely spot on. And this is something that we'll see in that the Bitcoin was incredibly vulnerable in its early days. And it's really thanks to some of the people that we're going to talk about today in this episode and future episodes it's thanks really to them and the fact that they were so selfless uh in their in 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 working on bitcoin um with no thought of personal gain it's really thanks to them i think in large part that bitcoin survived because in its early days it was really vulnerable and yeah a civil attack so yeah at this anyone wanting to take over the network they sign up loads of new users which are called sibyls um controlled by the malicious entity and in that way, they're able to, to overwhelm the net, you know, to, to gain control of the network. And I guess uh, uh, the easiest way to do this would be to use, um, use bots. You, yeah. know, you could sign up a load of bots to, to spam the network or, or whatever. So these three systems, Hashcash, B-Money and Bitgold, they were all forerunners of Bitcoin. Um, and all these guys mentioned, as I say, they're, they're key players in the Bitcoin story. And we'll talk about we'll talk more about them uh, at different points in, in the story. So the systems they designed, these were all attempts to create a form of digital money, but they all had, they all had flaws. They all came up short for one reason yeah. or another, as we've discussed. But Close, but no cigar. Exactly, exactly. But the biggest problem was that no one seemed to be able to figure out how to make such a system work without a central authority overseeing things. This, again, this idea of a third party of centralization. Um, and what's also worth noticing... I think is is this work took a long time. You know, Hashcash, we say that was 1997. Uh, Bitgold came out in 2005. Um, and these guys, you know, these guys were working on it as basically a hobby. Mm. Um, these guys, you know, they, they had other jobs. They, they, they had careers. You There's know, no they money coming in from this. Yeah. So it was a really, it was a slow process. This was something that, the, you know, these guys' passion projects that they of worked love, on. Yeah. yeah, real labor of love. So, yeah, so Bitcoin first appeared in 2008, three years after Bitgold, which was 2005. But before Bitcoin appeared, something else happened. Was it the 2007 crash? 2008 crash. 2008 yeah. crash. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, the financial crash. So, yeah, I mean, we I think we both remember this quite well, don't we? Basically, yeah. 2008 for anyone who either wasn't paying attention or wasn't really uh, or wasn't born perhaps, 2008 basically the whole financial system almost went down the toilet. Mm. I think is the technical term. Um and I mean I look back on that and I think it's the more you read about it it's it's terrifying how close we came to to anarchy, I think, in a way, you know, there's there's talk about. I, I remember seeing an article um, from Alistair Darling, who was the UK Chancellor. Alistair Darling, yeah. uh, who was the UK Chancellor at the time, and he said the cash machine. You know, we were a day away. We were hours away from the cash machines running out of cash. Really? And can you imagine? Can you imagine? You know, if people are going into shops and being like, "Hang on, my my card doesn't work," or "I can't get cash out." That I think it's not very many steps from that to 
cars burning in the street and you know just just yeah pure anarchy yeah yeah it's it's scary how close how close we came to you know things getting really really bad and things were bad in in a financial sense and um you know the, it was it was chaos and we're still dealing with the fallout from it but it's pretty easy to know where most of the blame for the financial crash lies the blame for the financial crash it can be largely put at the feet of the banks um, now, just to give that a bit of context, because since the Great Depression in back in the 1930s, it had been illegal for commercial and investment banks to, be to, the same thing. Yeah, to merge. And obviously, by commercial banks, we mean the sort of, you know, you, the piggy bank where you where where you put your savings, your chase, your NatWest, your exactly, HSBC. exactly, where as an investment bank, those are, you know, these guys are the speculators. These are, all, are the ones doing crazy trades, making obscene amounts of money. Um, but yeah, they weren't uh, they weren't allowed to merge together, spe- specifically in the U.S. Um, and this was as a result of the Great Depression. And this was enshrined in something called the Glass-Steagall Act, which was uh, 1933. I think we might have touched on this in in an, in an earlier episode. Um, but yeah, this stopped uh, commercial and investment banks being being the same entity. However, in 1999, Bill Clinton. Uh, was persuaded to repeal the Glass-Steagall Act. Um, And he said it would help by stimulating greater innovation and competition in the financial services industry. The the financial financial sector had been lobbying for, I think, for decades, really, to get Glass-Steagall overturned because they knew how much money they could make Mm. if they were only given access to everyone's savings that they could then speculate with. Uh, So, yeah, so one of Clinton's reasons for doing this might have been the effects of the Big Bang, which took place in 1986 in the city of London. This was when Margaret Thatcher, British PM at the time, she allowed for the deregulation of British banks. Uh, and this basically turned London into a, the financial powerhouse, which is which it still is today. Um, and so you basically had the creation of these new hybrid banks um, and they hired maths geniuses. Now, these guys were known as quants. Which I think is a great name, who basically figured out increasingly complicated and uh, baroque and opaque ways to mm. make money. And these get insanely difficult to understand. And great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is why we're not going to talk oh, about God. them in any detail. No. But uh, yeah, I mean, there, there are plenty of bankers out there who, who can't, who couldn't really give you a, a, an explanation of how these things work. They were so complicated. But. You know, these these quants, these maths geniuses understood them and they made a lot of money. And one of the most notorious ways involved basically packaging up mortgage debt that was sitting on banks books and then selling that debt in the form of securities. And and a security is basically any sort of financial instrument that can be bought and sold. So stocks, bonds, you know, those sorts of things, they are securities. So these 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 insanely clever guys figured out a way to to basically sell these mortgage-backed securities. And these securities, they were seen as safe bets. You know, no one no one thought they'd cause any problems. That made them easier to sell. And once they saw how easy they were to sell, they made more, so they took on more debt. Um, and they did this by approving more mortgages. So what happened was that people with terrible credit who should never have been allowed any sort of loan, really, or you know, had, who had no chance of paying a loan back, were suddenly were suddenly given mortgages, were suddenly approved for mortgages, and there are just crazy stories from the US and elsewhere 
of people um, <clears throat> of, of dead people being approved for mortgages, of, of homeless drug addicts being approved for mortgages, you know, people who just should not have been approved for mortgages. Yeah. Um, and these became uh, known as subprime mortgages. Uh, obviously, this, <laughs> this was unsustainable. So, th- so they didn't pay back their mortgage? As shocking as it is, that is, a, that is what happened. Yeah, Mad. because they couldn't. Um, it, beca- it was unsustainable. And eventually, this house of cards that was built up came crashing down. Basically, the banks stopped lending to each other. This was known as the credit crunch. Uh, and it, this saw the collapse of bank, you know, Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, um, AIG, the insurance giant. Uh, that, that had to be bought out. $85 billion the Federal Reserve had to pay to bail out, well, to basically buy out AIG. Um, They had the mortgage companies in the US, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. um, They had to be rescued by the US government. Just billions upon billions of dollars had to be be spent to to bail these entities out. And as I say, um, we're still dealing with the after effects of that over, you know, over, you know. Nearly two. Yeah, I mean, what was it? So 2008, yeah, well over over 10 years years ago. And counting, um, the f- and I think the fallout from the two thousand and eight crash is is going to be with us for possibly decades longer. Well, after, even more than this crash, <laughs> we, we might be seeing. Yeah, me- the post pandemic crash. The post pandemic crash. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, it was a disaster. Uh, these banks and all these other financial institutions, they'd all been lending and borrowing to each other. The whole thing. It was a domino effect. You know, once once one went down, they all went down. So. And yeah, it ended with these bailouts, which were funded by the taxpayer, but by us, the little guys. Um, and of course, no one responsible ever went to jail. One person went to jail, didn't they? One, yeah, maybe one person. One went dude to went jail. to jail. Yeah, I'm not sure what for. What yeah, <laughs> it was. I mean, it was it was crazy. It was crazy. So, it's really important to consider Bitcoin in the context of what. Firstly, what happened in 2008 and also what the cypherpunks had been talking about long before that. The fact that we couldn't trust these large entities, Um, you know, the the computer age had ushered in this whole new era and there were massive risks associated with it. And these risks basically came to pass in 2008. Um, Yeah, because the institutions that supposedly that were supposedly looking after our money had basically been gambling with it instead <laughs> yeah. basically gone Recklessly. to the casino yeah and so it you couldn't trust them anymore and especially when they were bailed out and no one was punished trust was just completely eroded and governments were kind of seen to be colluding in this as well because you know they were acting in the interest of the banks rather than the in the interest of the people um, and this only really confirmed the kind of libertarian views that the cypherpunks had. So that's some that's really important context to what happened next to the emergence of Bitcoin. Should we take a break before we talk about that? Yeah, let's have yeah. a let's have a quick five. Quick five. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV True Crime Podcast, To Live and Die in LA. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent 
telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. All right, come here. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the back seat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people. In an unscripted, unvarnished way, is getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine, and I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Campbell. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. <laughs> You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Shall we bring Satoshi Nakamoto onto the stage, as it were? <laughs> let's, let's bring this man into... <laughs> let's, let's start talking about Satoshi Nakamoto. A bit of context. So, 
obviously, we've talked about the financial crisis. Also, by 2008, the cypherpunk mailing list, that kind of fizzled out a bit. Um, because as you can imagine, a lot of uh, very spam. clever... <laughs> I think there was a lot of spam on it, actually. I think spam was one of the problems. Um but also, as you can imagine, a lot of um, a lot of very smart people uh, discussing all these kind of high level ideas. It had kind of got a bit toxic, apparently. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. It was all very argumentative, and yeah, it wasn't a lot wasn't, of egos. On yeah, you. a lot of big egos, and and obviously very very clever people as well. So in its place, uh, in its place, sprang up something called the cryptography mailing list. Um, which was, I think, where some of the better, you know, the better behaved people were. It's like, let's go off and join our own, make our own yeah. club. So, Adam Back, remember him? The hash cash. Guess inventor? who's back? Guess who's back? <laughs> Adam Back. <laughs> he, was, uh, he was on the cryptography mailing list. And then one day in August 2008, he got an email from someone he'd never heard of before. This person's name was Satoshi Nakamoto. Okay. Uh, Satoshi basically asked uh, Adam if he could have a look at a proposal for something called Bitcoin. And so Adam had a brief look at it um, and he re- he took the time. When he replied to Satoshi, he reminded him about all the other experiments with digital cash that had been tried by him and, and others. And I think he mentioned sort of Wei Dai and, um, and Nick Sabo's. Uh, yeah. Hal Finn. And how, yeah, he might, yeah, he probably might, might have mentioned Hal Finney as well. Um then on the 31st of October 2008, and this was 10 days after the Fed had loaned out $540 billion in order to keep the US economy going, Satoshi reappeared and he published the Bitcoin white paper to the cryptography mailing list. And this is, yeah, I mean, this is basically the beginning of cryptocurrency. You know. Is it another manifesto? It wasn't so much a manifesto, no. So a white paper is... It's a kind of outline. It's a synopsis of what you're trying to achieve. Okay. Um, now, this the Bitcoin white paper, which I've which I've looked through several times. I mean, it gets pretty complicated. Usually, a white paper is, as I say, more of a synopsis, a bit more of a general overview, and then you have the some, back page of a book. Yeah, the blurb, yes. basically. Um, and if you uh, and and uh, the yellow paper is the next one. The, the yellow paper tends to be the more technical one. That's how sort of a lot of projects work nowadays. But the Bitcoin white paper was was sort of both. It was a kind of technical overview. But I'm told, I mean, I'm I'm no expert on you know on programming or or, or writing code or anything like that. But I'm told that actually, as these things go, the Bitcoin white paper is extremely well written. I mean, it explains this very complex idea actually quite, quite clearly. And and when you do look through it, obviously, I have I have the benefit of, of having done quite a lot of research into it. But it is. Yeah, it, it's it makes it seems to make this complicated idea well. as straightforward as it can. Yeah, it does. And this is something we'll come back to when we talk about when we talk about the hunt for Satoshi, because the way he writes is really important. So this white paper was titled Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system. And here's the opening line. A purely peer-to-peer version of electronic cash would allow online payments to be sent directly from one party to another without going through a financial institution. That's the elevator pitch. Yeah. Yeah. This is, yeah, it's it's very clearly set out. Um, Yeah, it's it's a great opening line. Um, So the rest of the PDF basically explained how it all, the the preceding, the, the next few pages explained how it would all work. And then nothing happened. (laughs) <laughs> yeah so a week later so he put it so satoshi put this out 
on the cypherpunk mailing list here's my idea cypherpunk or the crypto one? Oh, uh, yes good point there's the cryptography mailing list yeah. that's true yeah well spotted um yeah so he put this out on the cryptography mailing list and said here's my basically here's my big idea yeah and nothing happened about a week later i think it was there had been two replies and both of them were fairly negative although both were sort of valid concerns but yeah but it wasn't not, like not this the... sounds this sounds awful who's this idiot you know yeah. um and interestingly one was from a guy called john levine um he was the guy who avril's uh, father <laughs> avril's father <laughs> he was the guy who went um went on to write uh, the internet for dummies Book. Okay. Yeah. Um, Did he invest in Bitcoin? Because I'm not going to read that book if he has. <laughs> I'll be like, you know, you know, you are. Well, maybe it does work out. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure you know as much as you. <laughs> um, I'm not sure actually, but um, yeah, he he pointed out that Bitcoin would be too vulnerable to hackers, which was a valid concern um, uh, early on. Early on, yeah. Uh, and the other was from a guy called James Donald, and he didn't think that it would be able to scale to be used by hundreds of millions of users. And as we'll see in future, again, this is a this is a, a fairly valid criticism. Is that just because there's the, a limited number of of um, transactions that can be that can be processed? Yeah, no, yeah. Or, or meant coins. Oh, coins! I, I don't think it was so much the limited the limited coins because yes, as you'll remember, there was a the um, Bitcoin has a 21, uh, 21 million coin limit. There will mm. only ever be twenty one million bitcoins produced. Tut, tut, tut. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I don't think uh, I don't think it, it, it was so much that it was like how will you you know how will you scale this how will how will more how can we make be able it? to use it uh, yeah, yeah. yeah and I think something else that's really important to remember is uh, and one of the reasons why perhaps this idea didn't get all that much all all that much in the way of, of replies was that a lot of the cypherpunks remember weren't too interested in the digi- in the digital cash thing they'd seen it. Uh, tried they've seen it tried and failed before. Yeah, yeah. So, so a, a bit lot disillusioned with 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 it. Exactly, exactly. I think a lot of them were sort of like, yeah, we tried this and it hasn't worked. And of course, a lot of them had egos probably. Then were like, well, we we tried our own one of this, and yeah, if I can't get it to work, then well. it just can't work. Um, yeah, and I, I think there was that. There was a lot of disillusionment. Um, but also, as I said, as I said when we first started talking about the cypherpunks, a lot of them had other interests. You know, a lot of them were more it's focused on things like thing, privacy. Yeah, so. yeah and, and remember, yeah, no one's doing this for a job. This isn't anyone's job. So a combination of sort of, I think, people being a bit disillusioned about it and people just being like, oh, digital cash again, here yeah. we go. Like, you know, there are more important problems out there. Okay. So a fairly meh to start with. Satoshi then fired up the Bitcoin software kind of around New Year 2009 um, presumably kind of undaunted by this sort of almost deafening silence. Um, and he mined the first block, and that is now known as the Genesis block. Okay, another really big moment in the history of cryptocurrency. And he received the first 50 Bitcoins as a block reward. Oh, wow. Uh, and if you don't know what a block reward is, that's all. That's what we talked go about. Go back in, to the other episode. Go back to, go back to the uh, involved um, episodes about blockchain. So, intriguingly, this Genesis block contained a message. The message read, The Times, 3rd of January, 2009. Chancellor on the brink of second bailout for banks. Oh. Yeah. And obviously, this is the Times, the, the newspaper in London, the, new, the British newspaper. Um, and yeah. Is Satoshi a Brit? Well, this is, yeah, there, there is or speculation. Was he based here? Well, it's, ah, we just don't know. 
but there are a few there are a few things that suggest he might be a Brit. He used British spelling mm-hmm. for one thing. So I, I, I think he. So he's either British or British educated. Yeah. So I, you know he'd use color C O L. O U R rather. He spelt than, it correctly. He spelt it correctly. That's correct. <laughs> he, w- <laughs> yeah, he used British spelling, and I think also um, people have analysed the times that he was online, and it suggests that he was online at around you know kind of daytime Greenwich Mean Time. Yeah. So, but that I mean you know that. That's, but but with with the, with nocturnal people, you know, he could have been. I mean, yeah, he he was yeah. If he was a programmer, he could yeah, he yeah. could have been keeping all sorts of hours. So that doesn't that doesn't tell that's us not, you know, for sure. But it's an interesting it's yeah. an interesting. Uh, um, but with those two, you can you can you can make a safe bet. Well, or, you can make a yeah. You can, you make, can make an, an educated inf- guess. Yeah, it's certainly it certainly points to that. Um, and there, are, I mean, there's so much interesting, so many interesting little facts and quirks uh, about the way he wrote and about the times that he was online, all this sort of thing. And 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 that'll that's all stuff we'll discuss when we when we go digging deeper for him. But um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, th- there's definitely there's definitely a chance that he could be a Brit. But yeah, oh, and obviously, yeah, the fact that he used a headline from the Times um, is, is another indicator that he could perhaps be a Brit. But yeah, mm. it really, what's important about the headline is what it says, you know, Chancellor on the brink of second bailout for banks. And that to me is an unmistakable uh, pointer to the fact that, yeah, this we've was a, been that through was this. was a catalyst for, for yeah, this. This, this, is, this is a reaction to what these, what these guys have done. He was uh, Satoshi was obviously he mined the first block. He was the first node on the Bitcoin network, um, and he then announced on the cryptography mailing list that Bitcoin was live. And again, a kind of a fairly big meh across the board. Pretty lukewarm response. Now, this leads leads me to one of my favourite quotations of all time, um, and this is Satoshi uh, writing um, on the um, cryptography mailing list. It might make sense to just to get some in case it catches on. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm seriously contemplating having that tattooed somewhere on my body. Mm. Um, now, the only person to respond positively was Hal Finney. Half. Half Finney. Finney. Was Hal Finney. Yeah. Now, he asked to see the actual code. He was interested enough. OK, let's see what this is made of. So Satoshi sent it to him. And they then began working on it together. So they would make tweaks and then they'd test it out and they'd send each other emails. Um, and Hal became node number two on the network. And he also mined a few blocks. And then Satoshi tested the network by sending Hal 10 bitcoins, 10 BTC, as we say. BTC is basically, as we discussed, the, sh- the, the, the shorthand, the ticker for the coins that live on the Bitcoin Not network. Not to be confused with BTS. Not to be confused with BTS, Korean the Korean K-pop band, yeah. So is is Hal about? No. So Hal Finney, Hal Finney has a is a very is, has a very sad story. Um, but I'm going to tell you about that in Later. the next episode. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, Hal is Hal is a big Hal is a big presence in the in especially in the early Bitcoin story. Uh, and one of the reasons why is, yeah, he re- he received the first ever Bitcoin transaction. He received 10 uh, BTC from Satoshi um, as he was testing out the network. So he was the first person ever to receive a Bitcoin payment. 
Now, the first few versions of the Bitcoin software, they basically kept crashing. You know, they were mm. full of bugs. There was one problem after another. And yeah, Hal basically mined several blocks as well. Um, and uh, he's reckoned to have received about 1,000 BTC, 1,000 Bitcoins as block rewards. Wow. Yeah, which obviously were worth nothing at the time. Um, but here's the thing. After a week, he became worried that all the work his computer was doing to mine these blocks was damaging it. Um, because as you know, like... Um, it can be quite uh, processor-sensitive. Yeah. yeah, it requires heavy. the computer to do a lot of, uh, a lot of work, and, you know, guessing these, guessing these numbers. Uh, and the fan was running on the computer to keep it cool, and the noise of the fan was irritating him. So he switched it off. <gasps> so it's not exactly the best start uh, to this new technology. Node number two... Tries it out for a bit and then like, yeah, this is actually quite annoying. <laughs> I'm going to stop it. Um, so, yeah, so that was that was the first the, 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 the really the first few days, the first few weeks of Bitcoin. Basically, Satoshi, whoever he was, and Hal Finney out in California um, co- collaborating on on tweaking this software uh, and trying to get this system to work and ironing out bugs as they came along. And it's worth pointing out again, like at this point and, and still to this day, nobody knew who this Satoshi guy was. He was completely unheard of. And, you know, he was just he was just a, a name that popped out out of the ether. Um, and what's weird is because most of the cypherpunks, they'd been corresponding with each, with each other for years uh, on these, you know, first on the cypherpunk mailing list, then on the cryptography mailing list. You know, they, they sort of they knew each other. Uh, and some of them had actually met in person. You know, they'd occasionally sort of got together. And, geek meetup. Yeah, geek meetup. Comic-Con um, or something like that. Satoshi just, he appeared one day. He, he, the first anyone hears of him is this email to Adam Back. Um, and he was promoting an idea that a lot of the cypherpunks had kind of long ago given up on or didn't have any interest in in the first place. So perhaps in that context, it's not all that surprising that Bitcoin didn't catch on straight away that's that you know everyone didn't throw read the white paper throw up their hands and go oh my word and i imagine there probably be- quite a few of these ideas floated about yeah yeah so like I'm, I'm sure sure you know there was every now and again someone would come up with an idea and then everyone just shits on it privately and yeah. ignores the email. <laughs> yeah, and I mean they would have seen they would have seen the similarities to to hash cash to B money to, to E-gold. gold to E gold. Um, yeah, and they probably would have gone. Oh right, here we go. Peer to peer electronic mm. cash again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Let's let's wrap things up. Well, let's let's quickly sort of draw together everything that we've that we've talked about today. So. As we said, the idea of digital cash had been knocking around for a long time. Nobody could make it work. Um, and as a result, a lot, of, a lot of the cypherpunks had kind of got fed up with it and gone on to other things. But many people saw the potential of the Internet. They wondered how it could be safely harnessed. And the cypherpunks you know, were the real driving force behind this. They were the people who wanted to push back against the power of governments and corporations to intrude upon our privacy. Um, but, you know, they tried and they tried to find ways around this. They tried to build systems that would push back against it. And, you know, most, most of the time they, they, they came to nothing. They didn't succeed. But... Their ideas, and as well as their failures and the some successes that they had, they basically provided the conditions. Frameworks. Yeah, yeah, they they provided. I'm almost certain they provided inspiration, but just the the conditions, the 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 ecosystem, if you like, for Bitcoin and Satoshi to emerge from the sidelines. And Satoshi, whoever he 
is, she. was, she they. is, was, yeah, must have been following these developments over time um, and, and, and been inspired to, to create Bitcoin from, from seeing these. So no one knows, does anyone have any clues? I'm I'm more interested in who Satoshi is now. Yeah, you really want to crack on with this Satoshi episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I will. Yeah, we'll we'll do that. We'll do that very soon. Should we talk about what we're briefly what we're going to talk about in the next episode? Yeah, let's do that. Okay, so next time Bitcoin basically starts to grow, it starts to take off a bit. So we're going to take a closer look at some of these people that we've been talking about in this episode, and we are going to start asking that question that I know you're so desperate to, to talk about: Who the heck is Satoshi anyway? Okay. Yeah. There's lots. Yeah, lots more coming up. We are. Yeah, we're just in the story of Bitcoin. We're just in the early days. Yeah. Yeah, it's just starting to kick off, and there's some. Yeah, some fascinating stuff. If you're listening and you and and uh, you've pushed on past those, let's be honest, quite tough first few episodes. Yeah. A lot to get your head round. Yeah. But you've got a better idea of it. It's going to get more exciting from this point on, isn't it? Yes, I can pretty much guarantee that. Yeah. yeah. If you've um yeah, if you've kind of stuck with us talking about blockchain and and also the I mean uh, yeah, the history It's it's interesting. Mm. But it's also complex and it's hard to get well <laughs> talking yep. from a personal point of view. <laughs> like you're yeah. not alone. You're no. not alone. I yeah, I've been I mean I've been looking at blo- uh, in particular blockchain for a long time and it's it took me a long time to get my head around it. But once you um, once you once you know how yeah, and that's what that's what we hope our listeners have now. But yeah, guys, if you've um, yeah if you've been sort of if you've sat with us through blockchain and the history of money and all this sort of stuff, now we're yeah now we're getting into the we're getting into, into the, the nitty gritty. Yeah, yeah, lots to look forward to, everyone. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back very soon with Bitcoin Part Two. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Coin Bureau Podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the back seat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. Is getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine, and I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.